Welcome to a very patriotic episode of Geeks Crossing. My name is Matt, and here in the United States, we're celebrating Independence Day today. I don't know if I'd call the 4th of July my favorite holiday, but it is a very nice celebration of my country. And it also usually commemorates the official start of summer, so that's a plus. However, while this is a great day for pool parties, barbecues, and firecracker ice pops, it's also a fascinating day for the history lovers such as myself. We're actually approaching America's 250th birthday. Today marks 245 years since many of our founding fathers convened to sign the Declaration of Independence from Great Britain, leading to the Revolutionary War, which ultimately gave us our country. That alone is worth celebrating, but you ever stop and ask yourself about our founding fathers? Who exactly were they, and what constitutes a founding father? The term itself didn't exist until 1916, when it was coined by then-Senator Warren G. Harding, who would be elected president four years later. But even if it took until 1916 for anyone to call the founding fathers that... Who exactly were they? Generally, they're the people who were in favor of and worked towards American independence. And then, when America was free, they played a part in setting up the new government and way of life. Historians generally agree on seven founding fathers. The seven gentlemen we all learned about in school. John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and of course, George Washington. These men fulfilled a variety of different jobs and roles. Presidents, vice presidents, cabinet secretaries, diplomats, drafters, and writers of very significant documents, and, in John Jay's case, our first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. There are other men I would personally add to this list. Um, names we also tend to hear about. Samuel Adams, Patrick Henry, John Hancock, John Dickinson, even a woman, Mercy Otis Warren. These people were all extremely important in the founding of our country, and any one of them could be the subject of their own detailed Renaissance mat. But this isn't a renaissance, Matt, and we're not here to talk about those classic founding fathers we all know. See, some historians are a bit broader with the term founding father, and they expand the definition to include any of the influential people and politicians who signed the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of the Confederation, or the Constitution. This greatly expands the amount of founding fathers our country really had. And some of these guys lived fascinating lives and did fascinating things. So I thought it'd be worth working our way through some unknown founding fathers. Not the first time I've shown light on extremely unknown figures from history, see Al Smith, and it certainly won't be the last. So to our non-American listeners, rest assured, our American audience will probably have never heard of any of these people either. This also isn't going to be structured like a typical top 10 list. I'm not going from best to worst, worst to best, favorite to least favorite, best known to least known. I'm just gonna talk, see where we go. In fact, I don't even think we have 10 on this list, so more the reason to consider this an unorthodox episode structure from me. From obscure fathers and great-grandfathers to future presidents to the very first abolitionists, here are obscure and unknown founding fathers. Whew, there's a long list of people to talk about, but maybe the best to start with is the man generally regarded as the bridge between two of our most stubborn founding fathers, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. As political parties first appeared in the United States, due to different people having different ideas about the size and role of the government, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson went from good friends to bitter political enemies. Adams had served as the first ever vice president, Jefferson the first ever secretary of state. So in 1796, when George Washington announced he would not seek re-election, Adams and Jefferson entered a bitter battle to succeed him. A battle that Adams won in 1796, but Jefferson had the last laugh when he won a close rematch in 1800. It's also worth noting that in the original Constitution, whoever got second place in a presidential election had to serve as vice president. So yeah, Jefferson was Adams' vice president during his administration, which 
was super awkward. But hey, the Constitution wasn't designed with political parties in mind, so I guess it's a fair oversight. Anyway, between the years of mudslinging and political infighting, by the time Jefferson became president in 1800, he and Adams were no longer even on speaking terms. Two legendary founding fathers who hated each other bitterly. Enter one Benjamin Rush, arguably one of our smartest founding fathers in terms of education. Born in 1746 to a fairly wealthy Pennsylvania family, Rush was educated at the College of New Jersey, which would eventually be renamed Princeton, and, after studying under a medical apprenticeship, traveled to Scotland to further his education. Rush returned to the colonies fluent in French, Spanish, and Italian, and opened a medical practice in addition to taking a position as a chemistry professor at the College of Pennsylvania. He was also elected into the American Philosophical Society, an organization dedicated to the pursuit of knowledge, so definitely a pretty smart dude. By this time, the early 1770s, trouble was brewing between Britain and her American colonies, as colonists wanted to have greater independence from British rule. In addition to his chemistry and medical textbooks, Rush started writing patriotic essays. Thomas Paine, the author of Common Sense, the extremely popular essay arguing for American independence, actually reached out to Rush for advice during the writing process. Rush was also invited to sign the Declaration of Independence as a representative of his home state of Pennsylvania, and organized the Pennsylvania State Constitution as a representative from Philadelphia. When the Revolutionary War broke out, Rush accepted a role as the Surgeon General, attempting to use his impressive medical knowledge to help soldiers who were sick and wounded. However, due to political squabbles and medical failures of other doctors, he resigned from this post in 1778. As someone who witnessed the blood of the war firsthand, Rush was vocally critical of American generals, including George Washington. In a 1778 letter, eventually passed to Washington himself, Rush argued that Washington was so ineffective, it was a wonder the war hadn't been lost yet. This was during a time where a group of soldiers called the Conway Cabal was trying to get Washington removed from command due to perceived ineffectiveness and replaced with General Horatio Gates. So it seriously looked like Rush was a member of this crew, or at least a sympathizer. Regardless, the war was eventually won, and Rush returned to Pennsylvania to work on his medical practice. In 1793, Philadelphia suffered an epidemic of yellow fever, and Rush tried to help remedy those who were sick. Although it's generally agreed upon that many of his techniques, such as controlled bleeding, actually brought patients closer to death. Whoopsie-daisy. Outside of his medical practice, he became a professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, where his students included William Henry Harrison, who would become the nation's 10th president, and Valentine Seaman, who would introduce the yellow fever vaccine to the United States. Rush also became a social activist and reformer, advocating the banning of alcohol, the abolishment of the death penalty, the education of women, and the abolition of slavery, founding the Pennsylvania Society for Promoting the Abolition of Slavery alongside Benjamin Franklin in 1774. Though his medical practices were becoming outdated, even by his own time, Rush remained one of the most recognizable doctors in America at the time, and remained close friends with many founding fathers, including John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. In 1803, Jefferson selected Rush to teach Meriwether Lewis, of the Lewis and Clark Expedition, about some basic medical knowledge for his trip, and gave him a kit which included some medical necessities, including pills called Dr. Rush's Bilious Pills, aka laxatives. But we should give Rush some credit there. Part of the reason we know the voyage of Lewis and Clark so well is because the mercury content of these pills were, shall we say, deposited <laughs> by the Lewis and Clark expedition as they traveled, and we can follow these trails years later. By the 1800s, Rush was nearing the end of his life, 
George Washington had died in 1799, but Rush was still adamant on fixing his reputation as a Washington hater, writing to John Adams and Chief Justice John Marshall regarding his views of the first president. One of his last achievements came in 1812, though, when he successfully convinced John Adams and Thomas Jefferson to resume writing to one another. By intervening in their petty hatred, Rush managed to rekindle the friendship between America's second and third presidents. Adams and Jefferson would write to each other about politics, current affairs, and personal matters, until their mutual deaths on the same exact day, July 4th, 1826, 50 years to the date of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. As for Rush, he passed away in 1813 of typhus fever. His wife, Julia Rush, lived all the way to 1848. Rush remains the icon of the American Psychiatric Association, and many of his 30,000 students that he'd taught over the years went on to make incredibly important medical advancements. I mentioned while talking about Adams and Jefferson's rivalry the weirdness of the early American political system. Well, two men who probably knew this better than anyone were the Pinckney brothers, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney and Thomas Pinckney. Charles Coatsworth Pinckney is not to be confused with Charles Pinckney, who also signed the U.S. Constitution and who was his first cousin. Yeah, names were weird back then. What's kind of interesting to note about the early American political system is that it eventually became based on regional differences, and you can kind of see the signs of it at the start. The Federalist Party, the party of John Adams and Alexander Hamilton, was popular in the Northeast, Rhode Island, Connecticut, and especially Massachusetts. The Democratic-Republican Party, also sometimes called the Anti-Federalist Party, was extremely popular in the South, Georgia, the Carolinas, and Virginia. Seeing as Virginia and Massachusetts were the biggest states in the early U.S., and each one was loyal to a party, you could see how the first presidential elections got so close. But what made the Pinckney brothers so interesting is that, despite their intense loyalty to South Carolina, a southern state, they were Federalists. I guess we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. Charles Coatsworth Pinckney was born in 1746 to a wealthy and elite South Carolina family. His brother Thomas was born four years later in 1750. In the 1750s, their father moved the family to Britain, where the boys received their education. This was a common practice for the well-off in the American colonies at the time, since Britain had renowned schools that had been around for centuries. Charles and Thomas studied in Europe, mostly England and France, for nearly 20 years as their father had died a few years after they moved and their mother opted to keep the family there for the time being. Both young men went for careers in law and briefly practiced in Britain. Finally, in the early 1770s, the Pinckneys returned to the American colonies, now educated young men who looked with interest and sympathy at the plight of the Patriots. Charles Coatsworth Pinckney married Sarah Middleton, another South Carolina Patriot from a well-to-do family of Patriots. Her father, Henry Middleton, would eventually serve as the second president of the Continental Congress, and her brother, Arthur Middleton, signed the Declaration of Independence, representing South Carolina. Weird fact, she also had another sister, Susanna Middleton, who would be the great-great-grandmother of Baldur von Schirach, the infamous head of the Hitler Youth in Nazi Germany. I wonder if Susanna was the black sheep of the Middleton family. Thomas, meanwhile, married Elizabeth Mott, daughter of Jacob and Rebecca Mott, another, you guessed it, extremely influential patriot family in South Carolina. Though they had spent most of their lives in England, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney and Thomas uh, Pinckney identified with the patriot cause and sought to get involved once fighting broke out. Charles joined the South Carolina militia almost immediately, joining George Washington's Continental Army, where he met fellow army officer Alexander Hamilton for the first time. By all accounts, Charles was a tough and loyal soldier. When he and 5,000 other troops were taken as prisoners of war by the British in 1780, Charles delivered this fiery quote to boost the morale of his doubtful prisoners. If I had a vein that did not beat with the love of my country, I myself would open it. If I had a drop of blood that should flow dishonorable, I myself would let it out. Basically, he was letting it be known that he was not abandoning his cause anytime soon. Thomas, too, became a captain in the war, coming an aide-de-camp to General Horatio Gates, fighting under the legendary Marquis de Lafayette. 
during a time he was also taken prisoner. But by the end of the war, both brothers were freed, and the Americans had won. Thomas went back to South Carolina, where he ran for governor and won overwhelmingly. During this time, the United States was operating under the Articles of Confederation, which basically treated the 13 new states as their own independent countries, loosely bound together. A federal government existed, but it was very weak and had little control. However, many colonists found this government too weak. The Pinckneys agreed with this and joined the rising number of voices throughout the 1780s, arguing for a new constitutional convention to make a new government. By this point, the Pinckneys were some of the most powerful men in South Carolina politics, with their impressive status as well-educated, law-minded war veterans. I already mentioned Thomas became governor. Charles Coatsworth became a successful lawyer and an important legislator, earning himself an invitation to the Constitutional Convention once it was established. He made many arguments, some of which worked their way into the Constitution. He argued unsuccessfully that members of the U.S. Senate should not get a salary, since he believed they should have to become successful on their own, and that a House of Representatives should not be elected by popular vote because it would be too impractical. However, he also helped establish a rule for the U.S. Senate to ratify all foreign treaties made by the President. And though he did not want to end the Atlantic slave trade, believing it to be too important to the South Carolina economy, he eventually helped broker a compromise that did just that. After the Constitution was ratified, Charles Coates with Pinckney thought he'd be done with politics. George Washington, nearly unanimously elected as the first president of the U.S., offered Charles his choice of Secretary of State or Secretary of War, which would eventually be reorganized under the Secretary of Defense. But Charles shot both offers down. Thomas also initially declined any positions offered to him. However, both men were happy to be of use whenever they could. In 1792, Thomas agreed to serve as Washington's ambassador to Great Britain. While in Europe, he helped John Jay negotiate the Jay Treaty, and he headed to Spain to bargain for control of the Mississippi River. Charles, meanwhile, turned down Washington's second offer for the Secretary of State after Jefferson resigned, but accepted a role as ambassador to France in 1796. That same year, Washington announced he would not be seeking a third term as president, helping set the precedent we currently abide by, in which presidents only serve two terms. But that meant 1796 could be an open field. And though the biggest names in the pool were Federalist John Adams and Democratic-Republican Thomas Jefferson, other major players saw a chance at gaining votes. This included... Thomas Pinckney. Well-educated, a war veteran, governor of South Carolina, advocate for the Constitution, and fresh off his success in Spain, Pinckney was a dream choice for many Federalists. He lacked the baggage of John Adams, or Alexander Hamilton, and he wasn't super partisan, meaning many hoped he would govern like Washington had governed. Federalist leanings, but mostly independent. On the Democratic-Republican side, Thomas Jefferson of Virginia and Aaron Burr of New York were also in the running. Again, this was an interesting era, as instead of casting votes for president and vice president, voters would vote for one of these names, and the electors of the Electoral College would cast votes for two names, with no distinction between which they wanted to be president or vice president. So, in theory, if Federalists were truly more popular than Democratic-Republicans, then Federalists would vote for John Adams and Thomas Pinckney, and though it would be close, one would be president and one would be vice president. But there were other factors at play. For one, Pinckney was a Southerner, so many Southern Democratic Republicans liked him, even though they hated John Adams with a passion. Alexander Hamilton, proud Federalist, also hated John Adams due to years of rivalry, and tried to get as many of his party members as possible to vote for Pinckney. However, it wasn't meant to be. Adams was elected with the most votes. Jefferson got the second most, so he was vice president. Pinckney got the third most votes. 59 electoral votes to Jefferson's 68 and Adams' 71. But third place meant diddly squat. Humorously, Thomas's brother, Charles Coatsworth, received one electoral vote from a North Carolina elector. If America had been operating under the rules we have today, Thomas Pinckney probably would have been selected as Adams' running mate. But alas, Thomas was out of luck. He went on to serve in the House of Representatives during the Adams years. As for Charles, he was still serving as ambassador to France. France had just gone through its violent and turbulent revolution and was once again at war with Britain. The Jay Treaty that Charles' brother had negotiated with John Jay had angered the French, 
who refused Charles' credentials as ambassador and turned him away at the French border. Charles expressed his concern with President Adams, who would organize a commission to head to France for negotiations. This commission, containing Charles, Elbridge Gerry, and future Chief Justice John Marshall, met with the French in what would be called the XYZ Affair. Basically, the French minister, the Prince of Talleyrand, a close ally of Napoleon, required the Americans to pay him and his friends bribes just to meet with him. In addition, Talleyrand sought to divide the American commission based on their political feelings, since Marshall and Pinckney were Federalists who didn't trust France, and Jerry was more or less independent. Offended by the requirement of paying bribes, Marshall and Pinckney returned home, while Jerry remained to try and desperately appease the French demands. This incident led to the Quasi-War, where America and France never actually declared war on each other, but for two years, their ships would attack one another in the Atlantic. For a while, it looked like war with France was looming, though, and President Adams sought the help of Washington, who was living in retirement. Adams asked Washington to accept the role of commander-in-chief of the army in case the French invaded, and Washington accepted under the condition that Charles Coatsworth Pinckney got to serve as a general. Washington's thinking was that Charles was an intelligent war veteran with popular support in the South, making him crucial in this potential war. And though Charles had a past of sometimes butting heads with Alexander Hamilton, who would be Washington's second-in-command, Charles accepted this role without question. Though Charles kept this role until 1800, war with France never officially broke out, and the French never tried to invade the United States. Instead of his brother Thomas, Hamilton now got Charles to serve as the vice president pick for John Adams. Again, this really wasn't how it usually worked in practice. Once again, Hamilton was not so secretly hoping his hated rival Adams would lose to Pinckney, but neither candidate even cracked the top two. Rather, Thomas Jefferson and his quote-unquote running mate Aaron Burr tied, leading the House of Representatives to vote to break the tie, which they finally did in favor of Jefferson, after Hamilton told Federalist congressmen to support him over Burr. Burr never forgave Hamilton over this, and we all know what happened with that. By the 1804 election, with his brother Thomas preparing to retire, former President John Adams already in retirement, and Alexander Hamilton dead by a duel, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney was arguably the best-known Federalist, and he was his party's pick to defeat President Jefferson's bid for re-election in 1804. This was the first presidential election following the 12th Amendment to the Constitution, meaning candidates now got to choose their running mates, bringing us to the modern system. Unfortunately, Jefferson was fairly popular, having just made the Louisiana Purchase and presiding over a healthy economy, so Jefferson crushed Pinckney in an electoral landslide. In fact, Pinckney even lost South Carolina, making him the first presidential candidate in U.S. history to lose his home state. Federalist prospects looked a little better in 1808, and Jefferson wouldn't be running again, and the economy was weakened due to the unpopular Embargo Act. James Madison, Jefferson's Secretary of State and hand-picked successor, was running, and with no new names on the Federalist side, since the party was effectively going to die off about 10 years later, Charles once again received his party's nomination and once again lost, though it was by a slightly closer margin than the time before. Still wasn't too pretty, as only the Federalist strongholds in the Northeast supported him and South Carolina once again abandoned him. After the 1808 election, both Pinckney brothers retired from politics. They became heavily involved with the Society of the Cincinnati, a group dedicated to the celebration and preservation of the Revolutionary War and its goals. Charles Pinckney became its third president after Washington and Hamilton. At the request of President Madison, a 62-year-old Thomas Pinckney returned to the battlefield for the War of 1812. Though he did see battle, it was mostly an administrative role. In 1825, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney passed away. His brother took over his position in the Society of the Cincinnati as its fourth president before he passed away in 1828. That's all she wrote on the Pinckney brothers. Like most of the founding fathers, they wouldn't have children or grandchildren carry their last names into the White House. John Adams certainly did, but there was actually one other founding father who boasts not one, but two direct presidential descendants. Benjamin Harrison V, 
was not actually called that by his family members, but his family had a history of just naming everybody Benjamin Harrison, so historians have attached the Roman numerals at the end to keep track. Born in Virginia in 1726, making him one of the older founding fathers, Harrison followed in the footsteps of his father, Benjamin Harrison IV, if you can imagine that. After his death from, and I kid you not, closing a window during a storm and getting struck by lightning, Harrison V inherited quite a lot of wealth from his father, including multiple plantations and mills. This is no entirely self-made man like Benjamin Franklin we're talking about here. Still, Harrison V saw it his duty to follow in his father's footsteps by running for a seat in the Virginia House of Burgesses, kind of like being a state representative today. He was a delegate for most of the years from 1752 to 1790, with only a few gaps. As a matter of fact, he was elected in 1749, and since he wasn't old enough to take his seat, he had to wait a few years. It was through this time invested in political life that he began to pay attention to the ongoing discontent with British rule. When Britain imposed the infamous Townsend Acts against the 13 colonies, stating it had the right to charge taxes from its colonies, Harrison was charged with issuing a formal response from the Virginia colony, which, if I had to guess, more or less boiled down to, go to hell, we're not paying you squat. Harrison at the time was very involved in his home state, helping raise the money to purchase a courthouse for the city of Williamsburg, where it still stands today. The Townsend Acts was uh, were eventually repealed, but more taxes from Britain kept coming. Britain had lost a lot of money in the Seven Years' War against France and tried to make up for it by taxing its colonists. In the early 1770s, Harrison and fellow Virginia delegate Thomas Jefferson teamed up to write a formal address to be sent to King George III, requesting the end of the Atlantic slave trade. Though Harrison and Jefferson both owned slaves, they believed that slavery would eventually have to be squashed out in the United States. King George rejected the notion, though, because the slave trade was too profitable for Great Britain. Rather humorously, in my opinion, after the events of the Boston Tea Party, during which some rogue Bostonian patriots boarded a British ship and dumped its tea contents into the harbor, Harrison was mortified and believed that the British East India Company should be reimbursed and even issued an apology to Britain. Obviously, not many other Americans felt that way or we wouldn't be here. Britain was definitely PO'd about the Tea Party, so they responded with the Intolerable Acts heavily taxing even more colonial goods. Harrison was not a fan of this either, and after condemning the acts, he prepared to leave Virginia for the first time in his life to attend the First Continental Congress in 1774. Upon his arrival, Harrison made some adversaries, namely two stuffy cousins from Massachusetts named Samuel and John Adams. A storyteller by heart who enjoyed earthly pleasures like food and wine, Harrison didn't hit it off well with the Adams, who were more standoffish as a result of their strict Puritan upbringing. So Harrison gravitated more towards the conservative members of the Congress. Adams was not kind to Harrison in his personal diary, calling him obscene and profane, but he noted that he appreciated his sense of humor and that he didn't doubt Harrison's dedication to the cause. In 1775, Harrison was in attendance at the Patriot Convention in which Patrick Henry famously said, give me liberty or give me death. That same year, he headed to Philadelphia for the Second Continental Congress. While in Philadelphia, he was roommates with his brother-in-law, Peyton Randolph, and fellow Virginian George Washington. Imagine being George Washington's roommate. That must have led to some pretty great stories. On July 4th, 1776, Harrison was the delegate chosen to read the final draft of the Declaration of Independence to the assembled Congress. As such, he was one of its signers. Contrary to popular belief, the actual signing of the Declaration of Independence was a pretty somber and scary event. All of the signers realized that they were giving up everything that they were pretty much declaring war against the biggest military power in the world, and that if they lost, which they almost certainly would, they would all be put to death. Delegate after delegate got up and walked to John Hancock's desk in the front of the chamber, where they signed their names on the declaration. It was painfully quiet and tense. Then Harrison got up and walked to the front of the room, after Delegate Elbridge Jerry, who was about to sign. Harrison was a lover of food and fine wine, so he was quite a portly man, compared to the scrawny Jerry. So Harrison cracked a joke to Jerry. 
I shall have a great advantage over you, Mr. Jerry, when we are all hung for what we are now doing. From the size and weight of my body, I shall die in a few minutes and be with the angels. But from the lightness of your body, you will dance in the air an hour or two before you are dead. Harrison was no Charles or Thomas Pinckney and didn't actually physically fight in the Revolutionary War. He was in his 50s and not in amazing shape. However, he was still an influential voice in command, bickering with Washington and Lafayette about strategy, getting into controversy when he came out in support of the Pennsylvania Quakers, who refused to carry weapons due to their pacifist religion. He returned to Virginia during the war, running for Speaker of the House of the new Virginia House of Delegates, where he crushed his closest competition, Delegate Thomas Jefferson, by a vote of 51 to 23. But it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows for Harrison. A British force was approaching, led by the traitor Benedict Arnold. Arnold and his men raided Harrison's family manor, intent on punishing a signer of the Declaration of Independence, but Harrison had seen this coming and evacuated his family ahead of time. This didn't stop an angry Arnold from having all Harrison family portraits in the mansion burned, and parts of the mansion itself significantly damaged. By the war's end, Harrison was serving as the governor of Virginia. His tenure was largely defined by economic unease, due to the war, and by negotiating some degree of peace with Native American tribes. Harrison had an audience with George Washington and returned to the Virginia state legislature one more time after his term as governor ended. He was involved in the Democratic-Republican arguments against the Constitution, specifically that it needed a Bill of Rights so that the citizens would have individual freedoms protected. He also argued in favor of federal grants to Christian churches, but in the end the convention decided in favor of Thomas Jefferson's famous proposal, the separation between church and state. By 1790, Harrison was weakened by obesity and gout and passed away in 1791, one of the earliest founding fathers to die. His son, William Henry Harrison, would go on to fight in the War of 1812 and win the election of 1840, becoming president for barely a month before himself dying of pneumonia. He was also the great-grandfather of Benjamin Harrison, a Republican who served as president in between Grover Cleveland's two terms. Benjamin Harrison. Glad to see his family kept the tradition of keeping that same name around. Anyway, since we've looked at Benjamin Harrison V, we may as well look at his rival in the Virginia House of Burgesses, Richard Henry Lee. The Lee family was one of great significance in the old days of Virginia politics, coming from a long line of military commanders and politicians. Richard Henry Lee's cousin was the father of Henry Lee III, a Revolutionary War general and early Federalist governor of Virginia. And he, himself, was the father of Robert E. Lee, the infamous Confederate general during the American Civil War. Born in 1732, Richard Henry Lee lived a fairly typical life of Virginia wealth. He mingled with the upper crust of Virginia and went to England and traveled throughout Europe to continue his education. This was cut short when his parents died, and he returned home to help his family care for the plantation. Though he didn't originally want to, since he was courting a woman in Europe to be his wife, his older brother broke off the engagement to get him home faster. Gee, that's harsh. From the late 1750s onward, Lee developed an interest in politics. He was elected to the Virginia House Burgesses, where he developed a cordial friendship with Patrick Henry and butted heads constantly with Benjamin Harrison V. Lee developed a reputation of being a strong speaker and power broker, seen when he authored a land agreement in Virginia signed by four of George Washington's brothers. This led him to develop a leadership role at the First and Second Continental Congress where he introduced what is known today as the Lee Resolution, the formal document that officially stated the 13 colonies should be independent. While the Declaration of Independence was being signed, Lee was back in Virginia, but he came back to Philadelphia to sign it. His younger brother, Francis Lightfoot Lee, was also a signer. 
He stayed in Virginia during the Revolutionary War, though he was the subject of some rumors that he and his two close allies, John and Samuel Adams of Massachusetts, were trying to remove Washington from command. As Washington was never removed, the rumors didn't travel very far. Lee was elected president of Congress at the war's end, overseeing the debate over the size, scope, and nature of the new U.S. government. Lee had fierce opinions on the matter. He strongly believed the federal government should not impose taxes. Proponents of a federal tax argued that the new government needed money to pay its massive debt from the war, but Lee argued this could be achieved by selling the land they won in the West. To think if Lee had gotten his way, the United States as we know it could have wound up remaining 13 states instead of the 50 we would eventually have. Lee continued to serve the new United States until his death in 1794. Another interesting founding father was George Clymer, one of the only five people to sign both the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution, Clymer had a fascinating resume for an early politician. Orphaned at one year old, Clymer went on to receive training to become a merchant. Like Benjamin Rush and Thomas Pinckney would be after him, Clymer was inducted into the American Philosophical Society for his intelligence and discussion of the arts. He was a lifelong patriot who opposed the Stamp Act and the Tea Act and protested both. He was invited to the Continental Congress as a delegate from Pennsylvania and served as one of the convention's treasurers. Like Lee, he was one of the first people to argue in favor of total independence from Britain, as opposed to those who thought it would be easier to just fight for representation in Parliament. During the Revolutionary War, British troops, led by General Henry Clinton, began to close in on Philadelphia, and most of Congress fled. Clymer, however, volunteered to stay behind, along with fellow signers George Walton and Robert Morris. Fortunately, Philadelphia was not captured. As the war ravaged on... Clymer returned to the merchant business his father-in-law and brother-in-law encouraged of him, developing a lucrative trading operation with the island territory of St. Eustatius. His son, John Meredith, though not a merchant by trade, operated with his father on this business. Sadly, John Meredith was killed in the anti-tax Whiskey Rebellion. As for the elder Clymer, he went on to attend the Constitutional Convention. An opponent of slavery, he also served as the first president of the Pennsylvania Society for the Abolition of Slavery that Benjamin Franklin and Benjamin Rush founded. Raised by Quaker relatives and growing up in heavily Quaker Pennsylvania, historians debate whether Clymer was a Quaker himself. His wife was disowned by her Quaker family when she married him, so it does not seem likely. Regardless, Clymer requested to be buried in a Quaker burial ground upon his death in 1813, a request that was granted. There was a signer of the Declaration who was an actual Quaker, though, and that was Joseph Hughes. Raised a Quaker since birth, a student of Princeton University, though there is no evidence that he actually graduated, Hughes became a very successful merchant and moved to North Carolina. His wealth and fame made him one of the prime candidates as a North Carolina delegate to the convention. Though not an initial supporter of independence, he was rallied to the cause by his people. The majority of North Carolina citizens were in favor of freedom from British rule. John Adams recounted a peculiar but honestly really funny moment from the Continental Congress regarding Hughes. Since Hughes was doubtful of independence, other members of the convention would go up and read from the data they had collected, showing that the majority of colonists were in favor of independence to try and change Hughes' mind. Suddenly, Hughes stood up and, I quote, lifting both hands to heaven as if in a trance, cried out, it is done, and I will abide by it, end quote. Apparently, the weirded out and bewildered looks on the faces of some of the older delegates was something out of a Raphael painting, according to Adams. Though a Quaker, and the Quakers were pacifists, Hughes became stringently pro-war. He signed the Declaration of Independence, and when war did break out, he was tasked with taking control of the colony's meager navy. He fixed it up by adding some of his private fleet, and led a careful selection process of the most able-bodied men to serve. Adams credits Hughes with laying the foundation for the U.S. Navy. Unfortunately, Hughes would not live to see the U.S. Navy. 
His health had been failing him throughout the 1770s, and Hughes would constantly complain of fevers, blurry vision, and fatigue. He passed away just before his 50th birthday in 1779, and his funeral was attended by the entirety of the Continental Congress. One of the youngest founding fathers was Edward Rutledge. At 26 years old, the youngest signer of the Declaration of Independence, Rutledge was born in 1749 and rose to prominence in South Carolina as the law partner of Charles Coatsworth Pinckney. Invited as a delegate to the First Continental Congress, Rutledge and the other South Carolina delegates initially refused to back the Lee Resolution, calling for complete independence from Britain, not sure if this opinion was popular or practical enough to succeed. Ultimately, though, Rutledge would sign on. During the war, Rutledge was captured alongside two other declaration signers, Arthur Middleton, brother-in-law to Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, and Thomas Hayward, during a British siege on South Carolina. He was later released in a prisoner exchange. Rutledge was arguably one of the fieriest of the founders, making enemies of both the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans as political parties appeared. A member of the Electoral College in 1796, he cast his votes for Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Pinckney, because they were both Southerners, not because he liked Jefferson. At the time, Rutledge disliked John Adams and the Federalists, due to the perceived notion that they were too pro-British. And he came to dislike Jefferson and the Democratic-Republicans because he found them too pro-French. <laughs> this later distaste would re lead Rutledge to become a Federalist, and he would go on to serve as the governor of South Carolina. During his tenure, he would die at the age of 50 due to complications with gout, although a popular legend went that he died out of shock after hearing about George Washington's death. This is probably just fiction. Contrasting Edward Rutledge, we have Stephen Hopkins, one of the oldest signers of the Declaration of Independence, born in 1707 and thus 70 years old upon signing. Hopkins belonged to one of the great, powerful, and influential families in Rhode Island, the great-grandson of Thomas Hopkins, one of the original settlers of the Rhode Island colony. Stephen Hopkins was an avid reader and an amateur scientist from childhood. He researched everything from classic literature to advanced mathematics, and he helped take measurements of the orbit of Venus as it was being charted in 1769. Unsurprisingly, he would also become a member of the American Philosophical Society. Hopkins became Chief Justice of the Rhode Island Supreme Court and eventually Governor. He attended the Albany Congress in 1755, a meeting between delegates of multiple colonies to discuss affairs and foreign relations in the shadow of the Seven Years' War. This was the meeting, most famously, uh, in which Benjamin Franklin unveiled the famous Join or Die political cartoon. You know, the snake chopped up into little bits. As he grew older and more influential, he entered an economic dispute in the colonies, which revolved around paper money versus coin currency. Hopkins favored paper currency, while his chief rival, Samuel Ward, another influential Rhode Island politician who served as Supreme Court Justice and Governor, as well as the founder of Brown University, believed hard currency and coinage were the way to go. The two had legendary battles over the future of the economy that included an attempt by Hopkins to sue Ward for defamation a lawsuit that backfired with Hopkins having to pay the court fees. This battle overtook the two throughout the 1760s, as both men wanted to be governor, in part, to stop the other. As protests heated up over the future of the colonies, Rhode Island legislatures and citizens alike began to consider that this minor economic dispute was probably not as important as the, uh, you know, tax problems, internal strife, war on the horizon. Hopkins and Ward put their rivalry on pause, allowing a compromise candidate, Josias Linden, to be elected Rhode Island governor in 1768, as both Hopkins and Ward agreed not to run. Hopkins returned to his seat on the Supreme Court of Rhode Island, and in 1772 he dealt with the controversial Gatsby Affair, when Rhode Island colonists boarded a British ship and burned it to the ground. Ironically, both Hopkins and Samuel Ward were selected as delegates from Rhode Island to the First Continental Congress. Hopkins had previously been critical of British tax policy in an essay titled The Rights of the Colonies Examined, 
so he was an attractive candidate for Congress. Ward considered his responsibility to the Congress incredibly important, but he would die of smallpox before the opportunity to sign the Declaration of Independence. Hopkins was venerated by most of the other delegates as a wise old man who had dedicated his life to the pursuit of knowledge and public service. John Adams wrote in detail about the great service Hopkins had done by even appearing at the Congress. Hopkins seemed to realize early on that the only way this discussion would end was with war, and warned the other delegates that they must be ready for this outcome. He helped negotiate plans for the colony's navy, installing his brother E.C. Hopkins as commander-in-chief of the new navy to mixed results. Nepotism will do that. Hopkins was one of the oldest men to sign the Declaration of Independence and could barely even manage to do so. His right hand was slightly paralyzed with palsy, so he had to support it against his left hand to sign his name. You can actually see this if you look at his name on the Declaration. It's noticeably messy. As he signed, Hopkins remarked, My hand trembles, but my heart does not. If you ever see the famous painting, Declaration of Independence, by John Trumbull, and wonder why one of the dudes in the room is wearing a hat, that's Stephen Hopkins. And no, I don't know why he's wearing a hat. Not long after the signing of the Declaration, Hopkins' health continued to fail, and he headed back to Rhode Island where he died in 1785. The founding father capturing most of America's attention as of late has been Alexander Hamilton. Part of the reason Hamilton was able to do what he did was because of a man named Robert Morris. Morris is known as the financer of the revolution due to his spending and budgeting abilities. Born in England in 1734, Morris emigrated to Maryland in 1747, then moved to Pennsylvania not long after and quickly established himself as a successful merchant. Morris became a banking apprentice under Charles Willing and learned how to budget and underwrite various colonial government projects. The firm Willing Morris & Company, a joint venture by Morris and Charles Willing's son Thomas, found much success in the ventures. Morris would eventually underwrite the voyage of the Empress of China, the first American ship to travel to mainland China in 1784. The 1750s saw the firm expand greatly into parts of India and East Asia, Spain, Italy, the Spanish colonies in the Caribbean, and even Africa, where Willing Morris and company dipped into the Atlantic slave trade put in place by King George III. As a merchant, Morris began to resent British tax policy throughout the 1760s and 70s. He encouraged other merchants not to abide by the deeply unpopular Stamp Act. He's quoted as saying, I am a native of England, but from principle, I am American in this dispute. Despite his deep political opinions, he usually allowed Thomas Willing to act as the public face of the firm, since he was serving as the mayor of Philadelphia at the time, and Philadelphia was the largest city in the American colonies. Morris himself refrained from political office at the time. Morris was not a delegate to the First Continental Congress, but since it took place in his home state of Pennsylvania, he was able to meet and mingle with out-of-state delegates in between congressional sessions, allowing him to befriend such men as John Jay and George Washington. In the meantime, he headed a task force to enforce a boycott of British goods. Morris developed sympathies for those delegates who wanted reform with British policy, but not a full break from British rule. As such, when he was invited to the Second Continental Congress in 1776, he was one of the few delegates to vote against the Declaration of Independence. Obviously, those in favor greatly outnumbered those who were opposed, so the Declaration was still ratified. And despite his opposition, Morris did not complain when the time came for him to sign, stating, I am not one of those politicians that runs testy when my own plans are not adopted. I think it is the duty of a good citizen to follow when he cannot lead. In a further description of his feelings, he explained, While I do not wish to see my countrymen die on the field of battle, nor do I wish to see them live in tyranny. Morris donated several of his business's ships to the Revolution, and alongside fellow Pennsylvanian Benjamin Franklin, Morris took a lead role in helping secure foreign alliances for the Americans. At Morris's behest, Congress assigned Franklin to secure alliances with France and Spain, which were successful, and Arthur Lee to secure alliances with Prussia, in modern-day Germany, and the Habsburg monarchy, in modern-day Austria. 
which were not successful. Without France and Spain's help, the American Revolution probably would have been a complete failure, so we have Morris to thank for that. Morris was one of the few delegates to remain in Philadelphia when the British inched closer and the rest of the Continental Congress retreated. He eventually left to go back to his business ventures, after some squabbles with the other delegates, but returned to sign the Articles of Confederation when they were drafted. Speaking of squabbles, Morris made some powerful enemies during his time in the Continental Congress, such as Thomas Paine and Henry Lawrence, president of the Continental Congress, slave trader, and father to John Lawrence, an early abolitionist who most people just know from the musical Hamilton. These men accused Morris of using his political position to become wealthier, though a congressional investigation later found these claims completely dubious. Though he had many powerful enemies, Morris made just as many powerful friends. He shared a mutual respect with Alexander Hamilton and political beliefs with George Clymer. Governor Morris, no relation, was a young New York congressman who bonded with Robert Morris due to similar political views. Benjamin Harrison V joined a business venture with Morris, and James Wilson teamed up with Morris to help implement the new state constitution in Pennsylvania. We'll get to James Wilson soon enough. Yeah, I know, another Pennsylvanian, but seeing as Philadelphia was America's biggest city for a while, it makes sense that a lot of our founding fathers were influential Pennsylvanians. Morris's most powerful friend was a man by the name of George Washington. Throughout his time with the Continental Congress, Morris had aimed to help the soldiers whenever possible, putting him in Washington's orbit. In the mid-1780s, Morris purchased a home that he intended to use as his main address, but once Washington was elected the nation's first president, he offered it to him as an official residence for whoever was president of the U.S. Washington accepted, and this plot of land, purchased and donated by Morris, became our first White House, before the real deal was built and finished in 1800. After playing a major role in dictating the Constitutional Convention, including delivering the opening remarks, calling for George Washington to be chosen as the chairman of the convention, and signing the document itself, being one of only six men to sign both the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution, Morris was offered the job of Secretary of the Treasury by Washington, but he turned it down, recommending Hamilton for the role instead. If Morris's goal was to stay out of government, it failed. The Pennsylvania state legislature elected him as one of the first U.S. senators from Pennsylvania, where he became a Federalist and one of the architects of the Compromise in 1790, in which the new government assumed all the debts of the states in return for the new capital of the U.S. to be moved down south, in a swamp that would eventually become Washington, D.C. The 1790s were not too kind to Morris, though, as he landed himself in debt. A lot of debt. So bad he was put in debtor's prison for being unable to pay all of it off. He was stuck in debtor's prison from 1798 to 1801 imprisoned during such significant events as the death of George Washington and the election of 1800. Upon his release, he lived out the remainder of his days quietly in retirement, and he died in 1806. Believe it or not, Morris wasn't the only founding father to wind up in debtor's prison. James Wilson also shares the honor, or maybe dishonor. Born in 1742 in Scotland, and a student of such monumental thinkers as Adam Smith, Wilson arrived in Philadelphia in 1764, quite a bright scholar. He got a job teaching law at what is now the University of Pennsylvania and studied in the law office of John Dickinson, the penman of the revolution. Like most of the uh, other intellectual founding fathers we discussed today, Wilson became a member of the American Philosophical Society, eventually becoming its vice president. Wilson took an early interest in American independence, penning essays and letters in favor of the subject as early as 1768, with work judged by scholars to be on par with that of John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Wilson's main argument stated that, Though the colonies should be free and independent, they should also be grateful and to some degree loyal to the British king for all he'd done to them. Of course, this eventually evolved into full-blown independence talk by the time he was chosen as a delegate for the Second Continental Congress in 1776. I find this anecdote quite funny, but apparently, even though Wilson was in favor of independence, 
He refused to vote one way or the other until he went back to the district he was representing and asked his constituents what they thought about it, believing this was his duty to accurately represent them. When he got positive feedback, he happily returned to Philadelphia and signed the Declaration of Independence. Wilson didn't do too much during the war, but he was involved in a frightening situation in Philadelphia. As Wilson was more aristocratic and conservative in his leanings, he was not as radical about the Loyalists, American colonists who preferred British rule, as some of the other patriots were. So, when the British abandoned Philadelphia during the Revolutionary War, and many Philadelphia citizens who had helped them were put on trial, Wilson defended these Loyalists from the government seizing their land and exiling them. After the trial, Joseph Reed, a fascinating person in his own right, and at the time governor of Pennsylvania, gave a fiery speech against the defense of the Loyalist, and an impassioned and boozed-up mob went to Wilson's home to try and kill him. Wilson had been dining with some friends at the time of the riot, and had to barricade his home. Six people died, and around 18 were injured, in what is known as the Battle of Fort Wilson. Had soldiers not intervened to save Wilson, he very well may have been killed. Joseph Reed later pardoned all of the rioters in a middle finger to Wilson. With his intense knowledge of law, it was at the Constitutional Convention where James Wilson's presence was truly on display for all to see. According to notes by James Madison, Wilson spoke the second most at the convention, second only to Governor Morris. Benjamin Rush called Wilson's mind one blaze of light for his quick and bright speeches. Wilson was a man who believed government should be as democratic as possible, and many of his proposals about the Constitution reflected that. He championed the concept of the House of Representatives and hated the idea of the more elite Senate, where members were voted by state legislatures. His plan to have senators directly elected by the people was defeated, but it would eventually become law in the 17th Amendment in 1913. His original plan for presidential elections was for them to be completely national, but developed the idea of an electoral college instead, which was approved. He wanted as many people to vote as possible, originally wanted to extend suffrage to men who didn't own land, at the time quite a bold proposition. He even wanted the voters themselves to ratify the Constitution, instead of state legislatures. Obviously this didn't happen, but boy, he was a man of conviction, huh? As for slavery, Wilson kept his mouth shut on the issue because he didn't want to anger southern slave-owning delegates. He was loudly opposed to the practice and believed the Constitution would make it so that slavery would be doomed in America. In a way, he was right. At the convention, he proposed the Three-Fifths Compromise as a way for southern states to allow African Americans to count for their population without freeing them. But this was a proposal he quickly came to regret. Due to his design of the Electoral College, and his belief that the president could become the symbolic leader of the American people, a role the presidency did not develop for a while, but a role Americans definitely expected to have today, Wilson is sometimes called the father of the executive branch. Wilson led the charge for the ratification of the Constitution, and it's largely thanks to him that Pennsylvania became the second state to sign on. His State House Yard speech in favor of ratification was more influential than even the Federalist Papers at the time, being printed in newspapers and distributed by George Washington himself. The speech itself is interesting, as Wilson says a lot about what he thinks a government should be. He identifies three forms of governments, monarchy, aristocracy, and republic-slash-democracy, the preferred option. He also railed against the Bill of Rights, which included provisions that the federal government could not impede on freedom of speech or the right to bear arms, among others. Wilson, however, thought the Bill of Rights was stupid, since the Constitution didn't give the federal government power to impede on any of these things, and he wasn't worried that it would usurp these powers. Once the Constitution was ratified, Wilson wanted to be the nation's first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. President George Washington, however, picked John Jay though he still chose Wilson as an associate justice. Wilson served on a variety of early Supreme Court cases, which clarified some minor hiccups in the new government. Towards the end of his term, though, he landed in economic trouble with creditors. He wound up in debtor's prison multiple times and spent the last few years 
on the Supreme Court in North Carolina on the run from creditors. In 1798, after contracting malaria, he died while visiting a friend, making him the first Supreme Court justice to die. Wilson was buried locally in North Carolina, but over a century later, his body was finally moved to his home state of Pennsylvania. Let's move on to another one of our first Supreme Court justices, Samuel Chase. Born in 1741, Chase was educated at home and pursued a career in law. His lawyer buddies gave him the playful nickname Old Bacon Face due to the reddish tannish complexion of his skin. That's not the weirdest thing about him, though. In 1762, Chase was expelled from a debate and discussion society for, and I quote, extremely irregular and indecent behavior. This was probably at least in part due to the conflicts he stirred against the more aristocratic Maryland politicians, many of whom made up this club. In 1765, Chase was one of the loudest voices in Maryland in opposition to the Stamp Act, alongside his close friend, William Packer, leading Marylanders to choose both of them as delegates to the Continental Congress, where they signed the Declaration of Independence. While in Philadelphia... Chase attempted to engage in insider trading by using his position as a delegate to his advantage, but he was found out and sent back to Maryland in disgrace. Chase remained more of a regional figure until 1796, when, I guess his reputation being healed by this point, uh, as one of George Washington's final decisions as president, he was chosen as an associate justice of the Supreme Court. This is where politics get involved. See, at the dawn of the Republic, there were two parties, again, the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans. After 1800, with John Adams' close loss, no Federalist would ever serve as president ever again, and the party would lose its relevance in Congress, too. However, the Supreme Court would become the last remaining hotbed of Federalist thought going into the 1800s. Many Democratic Republicans thought that the practice of judicial review, which the Supreme Court began, you know, using to deem laws constitutional or unconstitutional, was an overreach of court power and a violation of the Constitution. Indeed, judicial review was not mentioned at all in the Constitution. All of this led to the dramatic impeachment of Associate Justice Samuel Chase by President Thomas Jefferson and House Speaker John Randolph, both Democratic Republicans, in 1803 under the accusation that Chase was letting his Federalist Party leanings influence his decisions on the court. Despite the fact that Democratic Republicans made up the majority of seats in Congress, the impeachment effort failed. Judges and justices accused of crimes usually have to be accused of more serious stuff, like ethical or legal misconduct, not having ties to a party. For this reason, many Democratic Republicans voted for his innocence. After presumably flipping Thomas Jefferson the bird, Samuel Chase went on to continue serving on the Supreme Court until his death in 1811. He remains the only Supreme Court justice to have ever been impeached in U.S. history. And his impeachment was one of the first impeachments of such a high-ranking figure. Let's get to a New Yorker on this list, huh? You don't get much more important New Yorkers from this time period than Robert Livingston. Born in 1746 to an influential judge of the same name, Livingston was born into a large, wealthy, important family in New York. In 1765, he graduated from what is now Columbia University, more specifically Columbia College, where he got his law degree. In 1770, he married Mary Stevens, daughter of a congressman and sister to John Stevens III, the inventor responsible for the first U.S. steam locomotive and steam ferry, as well as the mind behind much of U.S. patent. His friendship with John Stevens III would help kind of inspire this love and interest in steam technology, which we'll get to. At the time Livingston was rising to power, New York was sort of a stronghold for loyalists, and there was a lot of British influence. As such, when Livingston started to express patriot leanings, he lost his job as recorder of New York. His influential family, bright legal mind, and patriot leanings did all combine to get him a ticket to the Second Continental Congress in 1776, where he was a member of the Committee of Five, the group of five representatives who drafted and wrote the original Declaration of Independence. 
Thomas Jefferson of Virginia would ultimately be the one to do most of the writing. But the other committee members, Livingston of New York, John Adams of Massachusetts, Benjamin Franklin of Pennsylvania, and Roger Sherman of Connecticut, were key in its development as well. Livingston would have signed the Declaration of Independence upon its completion. Unfortunately, he was called back to New York, and he had his cousin, Philip Livingston, sign it for him. One year later, in 1777, Robert Livingston became Chancellor of New York, the highest judicial office in the state at the time. Simultaneously, he served as the first Secretary of State under the Articles of Confederation government, technically called Secretary of Foreign Affairs. In 1789, after the ratification of the U.S. Constitution, which coincidentally was signed by William Livingston, another one of his cousins, <laughs> Livingston swore George Washington in as the first president of the United States. For all you conspiracy nuts out there, Livingston was a hardcore Freemason, becoming Grand Master of the New York Lodge. The Bible he swore in George Washington is still owned by the Freemasons, and is used for Grand Master swearings as well as the U.S. presidential inaugurations whenever it's requested. After Washington's presidency began in earnest, Livingston became an outspoken Democratic Republican, breaking with fellow New Yorkers John Jay and Alexander Hamilton, and allying with Democratic Republican New Yorkers he had previously been tense with, including George Clinton, who would eventually serve as New York governor and vice president to Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, and Aaron Burr, who, yeah, we know what happened to Aaron Burr. <laughs> as a Democratic Republican, Livingston spoke out against the Jay Treaty with Great Britain and even unsuccessfully ran for New York governor against incumbent John Jay. When Thomas Jefferson was elected in 1800, becoming the first Democratic-Republican president of the United States, he selected Livingston as ambassador to France. In 1801, Livingston accepted the job, leaving his long-standing post as Chancellor of New York, though he retained the moniker Chancellor Livingston for the rest of his life. In France, Livingston met Napoleon. Yeah, that Napoleon. And helped negotiate the Louisiana Purchase, which would arguably become his most famous role in life. Livingston also met Robert Fulton, and the two developed the steamboat together. Livingston was the first ever steamboat passenger on a maiden voyage up the Hudson River, and he and Fulton were both consultants when the Erie Canal was being planned. Livingston passed away in 1813, leaving behind an enormous legacy that included being a member of the Committee of Five, swearing in the first ever president, helping develop the steamboat, and negotiating the Louisiana Purchase. Speaking of the Committee of Five, you may or may not be familiar with Roger Sherman. He holds the distinction of being the only person to sign all four of what historians call the Great Papers, the Articles of Association, in which states voiced their official disapproval of British tax policy, and of course the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, and the Constitution. Robert Morris and John Dickinson tie for second, having signed three. Dickinson probably could have signed the Declaration of Independence, but he was hopeful for peace with Britain, so he decided not to. Sherman was born in 1721, a small town in Massachusetts, though his family moved to Connecticut when his father died. His childhood was spent at, at grammar school, the equivalent of elementary school, and reading from his father's library. And though he started out as a humble shoemaker, he showed promising skill. Sherman developed mathematical skills that became handy with a job as county surveyor in 1745, and he helped create astronomical calculations for almanacs beginning in 1759. Though he had no legal training, he studied for law and eventually became a promising lawyer. He obtained a slew of different political occupations in Connecticut and even became involved at Yale, where he received an honorary master's degree from his tenure as treasurer and a professor of religion a subject that interested him greatly, as historians can deduce, from his letters back and forth with various theologians. Due to his status in Connecticut and his patriot leanings, Sherman was a delegate at the Continental Congress and a member of the Committee of Five, where he drafted and signed the Declaration of Independence. He would also sign the Articles of Confederation, setting up a new U.S. government. In 1784, he was elected mayor of New Haven, Connecticut, a position he would hold until his death. 
Sherman went to the Constitutional Convention not expecting to create a new government, but modify the Articles of Confederation he had already signed. At 66 years old, he was the second oldest person there, behind 81-year-old Benjamin Franklin. In many ways, Sherman was the antithesis of the democracy champion James Wilson. Sherman believed the American people could be easily fooled, or otherwise lacked information necessary to play a role in the government. At the time, Connecticut was a fairly isolated state, doing well with its own ports and its own trading agreements with other countries and colonies. He may have felt that one big national government, in which all the citizens of all the 12 other states could have brought down the quality of the leaders the people of Connecticut would have to live under. Sherman was also firmly against paper money. Oh boy, someone gets Stephen Hopkins on the phone and thought the presidency and the executive branch should be minor, just a way for Congress to get its bill signed into law, and that's that. Sherman was also opposed to slavery, but was willing to use it as a bargaining tool to get Southerner delegates to vote for him. He thought he was getting the last laugh, though, as he believed slavery was already on its way out of style, and that he was promising the Southerners virtually nothing. <laughs> Sherman was one of the first founding fathers to die, passing away in his sleep in 1793 from a two-month battle with typhoid fever. His legacy is strong, however, the reason why people started naming their sons Sherman was in Roger Sherman's honor. Though this was also eventually done in the honor of Civil War General William Sherman and his brother Senator John Sherman towards the late 1800s. We're nearing the end now. There's only two more founding fathers I really want to mention. One is Elbridge Gerry, who I've mentioned a few times in this episode thus far. Born in 1844 to a wealthy family of merchants in Massachusetts and named after his ancestor John Elbridge. Seriously, I, I can't be the only one who was curious. Why the heck is this guy named Elbridge Gerry? <laughs> Gerry's father had a role in the local militia and Gerry himself became an opponent of British tax policy after the Seven Years' War. He met and communicated with many other like-minded Massachusettsans, such as Mercy Otis Warren and the Adams cousins, John and Samuel. Enriched by these connections and by his lucrative merchant business, Jerry became one of the most influential men in the state, serving local political office. By the early 1770s, his elder father's health was beginning to fail him, and Jerry dedicated time to caring for him. In addition to his responsibilities ensuring trade between his hometown of Marblehead and Boston, his father died in 1774, and Jerry turned down an invitation to the First Continental Congress to grieve. Jerry did ultimately accept an invitation as a delegate to the Second Continental Congress in 1776, after hostilities broke out between British soldiers and colonists in the Massachusetts towns of Lexington and Concord. Jerry played a major role in supplying the Continental Army in Massachusetts using his wealth and resources. He argued in favor of independence as the solution to the colony's problems, and won over many other delegates. John Adams was very impressed, and is quoted as saying, If every man here were a Jerry, the liberties of America would be safe against the gates of earth and hell. Like Benjamin Rush, Jerry was implicated as a member of the Conway Cabal, a commission seeking to remove George Washington from command, but Jerry was outspoken against such charges. Jerry was a proponent of a small federal government, putting him roughly in line with the Democratic-Republican way of thinking early on but he would not become a member of any organized political party until much later in life, preferring to work with members of both parties. After the war, Jerry began investing in land rather than merchant trading. In 1783, he joined the Confederation Congress, the body that led the U.S. during the Articles of Confederation government when there was no president. And in 1785, he married Ann Thompson, a woman 20 years younger than him. His good friend, Virginian James Monroe, was his best man. She's Rebellion, the Violent Riot by Anti-Tax Rebels, convinced the normally small government-minded Jerry that all power should not be given to the people. And at the Constitutional Convention in 1787, he occasionally faltered in his Democratic-Republican beliefs, successfully arguing for the indirect election of senators and for establishing the criteria of who could serve in the Electoral College. He also opposed the Three-Fifths Compromise. When the Constitution was decided and voted upon, Jerry was one of three delegates to vote against it. 
claiming that the convention didn't have the authority or power to change the government in such radical ways. He also demanded the inclusion of a Bill of Rights to protect the people from an all-powerful state. Pro-ratification writers and politicians, who would become the Federalists, attacked and vilified him in the press, comparing him to the men involved in Chase Rebellion. When Massachusetts opted to ratify the Constitution, Jerry was invited to observe the ceremony, but not to speak. Things were tense, and he eventually walked out after a shouting match with convention chair Francis Dana. Jerry continued to grow estranged with emerging Federalists, especially those in his own state, such as Rufus King, who would serve as the Federalist vice presidential nominee under Charles Coatsworth Pinckney in 1804 and 1808, and the very last Federalist presidential nominee in 1816, which he lost in a landslide. In 1788, Jerry lost a bid for governor of Massachusetts against very popular incumbent John Hancock and went to the House of Representatives instead. But keeping with his independent nature, he happily approved of Treasury Secretary and founding Federalist Alexander Hamilton's handling of the economy and the debt, though he didn't actually like the Treasury Department because he worried it could supersede the president's. Jerry spent the 1790s caring for his ill wife and his children before being appointed by President John Adams as a member of the commission heading to France to try and repair strained relations. Along with Charles Coatsworth Pinckney and John Marshall, Jerry would become involved in the XYZ affair, in which the American delegates were disgusted and unnerved by Talleyrand's bribe demands. Of course, Talleyrand had seen all this coming. Knowing that the Federalists didn't like France all that much after its bloody populist revolution, and knowing that Jerry was the only person on the commission who wasn't a Federalist, he purposely scared off Pinckney and Marshall and tried to entice Jerry into negotiations. This didn't work, as Jerry only remained in France a bit longer than Pinckney and Marshall, with nothing to show for it. But it made the Federalists hate him. Federalists like Secretary of State Thomas Pickering blamed the independent but Democratic-Republican-leaning Jerry of purposely sabotaging the mission due to French sympathies. Democratic-Republicans like Thomas Jefferson and longtime Federalist friends like President John Adams spoke out in defense of Jerry, but the damage was done. After watching effigies of himself burned on his front lawn, Jerry had no sympathies towards the Federalists, and by the election of 1800, one of America's last major independent politicians was a determined Democratic-Republican. Since his loss to John Hancock in 1788, Jerry still had some desire to be governor of Massachusetts, but he lost time and time again to Federalist Caleb Strong. Probably because he ran a strong campaign, huh? That's stupid, I'm sorry. At this time, elections for governor were held every year in Massachusetts, and Jerry finally won the governor's mansion in the 1810 election, albeit narrowly, against Christopher Gore, and won a rematch election in 1811 by a larger margin. Jerry began his term as governor with a Federalist-controlled state legislature, but in his second term, he was granted a Democratic-Republican-controlled legislature and an easier time to governor as he pleased, purging Federalist appointees from the state government. Jerry's most infamous moment came in 1812. It was time to redraw the electoral boundaries of the districts in Massachusetts, as the Constitution dictated. But Democratic Republicans in their state legislatures carved and sliced districts to give their party more seats. Record state Jerry was not happy about this, but he signed on to it anyway. Federalists in the press called out this partisan border drawing, and a cartoon began to go around mocking one of these new districts, which the cartoon believed looked like a monster that slightly resembled a salamander. He called this monster-shaped district a gerrymander, and thus the term gerrymandering got its name, a partisan method of dividing districts so that the party doing the dividing gets more seats. Even in its day, it was unpopular. Federalists brought former Governor Caleb Strong out of retirement, and Jerry was crushed in the 1812 gubernatorial election. Broke and out of a job, Jerry sought a position from James Madison, who took him on as his running mate in the 1812 presidential election, which he won. Interestingly, though Massachusetts remained the last Federalist stronghold, its state legislature remained Democratic-Republican due to 
gerrymandering. Throughout the War of 1812, Gerry became paranoid that the Federalists would unite with the invading British Army and attempted to have Federalist newspapers shut down. Gerry began his tenure as vice president at the age of 68, the oldest ever for a vice president until Charles Curtis and Albin Barclay, veeps to Herbert Hoover and Harry Truman. He grew ill and died in late 1814, having managed to repay all his debt and becoming the first uh, vice president to die in office. Gerry is also the only signer of the Declaration of Independence buried in Washington, D.C. His great-grandson, Peter Gerry, was a Democrat who served as a U.S. Senator in the 1930s and 40s. Our final founding father, both on this list and in a more literal sense, which I'll get to in a minute, is Charles Carroll of Carrollton, the only Catholic signer of the Declaration of Independence and one of the very few Catholic founding fathers, alongside his cousin Thomas Carroll, a friend of James Madison's and a delegate at the Constitutional Convention, and Irish immigrant Thomas Fitzsimmons of Pennsylvania. Carroll was born in Annapolis, Maryland, in 1737, an only child. His parents didn't officially marry until 1757, so he was technically born out of wedlock, though it's worth noting his parents were together, they just didn't marry for inheritance purposes. Carroll grew up in a strong Jesuit education, which is to say, an order within the Catholic Church. He attended Jesuit school in Maryland before his parents sent him to France to continue his education there. He graduated in 1755 after an extensive Jesuit education, a rigorous curriculum in which Carroll studied classical Catholic philosophy and learned multiple different languages, and returned to the American colonies not long after one of the most highly educated founding fathers. His father, Charles Carroll of Annapolis, gifted his son the family mansion, Carrollton Manor, which had been passed down for generations. Charles Carroll the son began going as Charles Carroll of Carrollton as a result in part because Charles Carroll was a fairly common name in the early colonies. Carroll never lived in his family manor, but nevertheless considered it an important part of his family and identity, so he took the name Carrollton at the end. Finished with school, Carroll looked to enter the workforce, but Maryland laws prohibited Catholics from entering politics, becoming lawyers, or even voting. The argument, as was the case with most anti-Catholic sentiment in American history, was that Catholics would answer to the Pope and not the British crown. Additionally, Britain was Anglican, not Catholic, and many of its enemies, such as France and Spain, were Catholic, so there was a distrust there. Despite legal discrimination against him, Carroll rose up to the task and, over the course of the 1760s, established himself as one of the most wealthy and successful men in all of the colonies due to extensive agriculture and merchant work. Throughout his several plantations, Carroll kept many slaves, and though his Catholic upbringing and personal beliefs maintained that slavery was immoral, and he believed it would eventually be wiped out, he didn't free any of his own. Understandably not interested in politics due to, you know, being banned from them, Carroll actually later got caught up in the excitement as relations between Britain and her American colonies soured in the 1770s. Carroll became vocally in favor of American independence. He started a column in the Maryland Gazette under the pseudonym First Citizen, in which he lambasted the taxes Britain imposed. A loyalist politician chose a pseudonym of his own, Antillon, and attacked Carroll's patriot viewpoints. Daniel Delaney the Younger, enraged by Carroll's charge that the influential Delaney family shared a small monopoly on the governorship of Maryland, took out a pen and, as Antillon, began arguing with First Citizen. Once he found out who First Citizen was, his attacks became more and more personal. Carroll, taught to be a distinguished gentleman, never res resorted to mudslinging himself, though he duly noted in his column that Antillon must have had no real argument if this is how he was conducting himself. Carroll became increasingly tied to the more radical patriots. We all know about the 1773 Boston Tea Party, but did you know that there was a similar event, the Annapolis Tea Party in 1774? A British ship, the Peggy Stewart, was burned by American colonists, with Carroll as one of the leaders and organizers of the attack. 
Indeed, Carroll was increasingly convinced that violence with Britain was the only way the colonists could achieve independence. Abandoning the notion that negotiation could lead to a peaceful split, an idea clung to by John Dickinson, among others, and more in line with the Lee Resolution. Due to both his wealth and his vigor, Carroll was involved with the revolutionary cause early on. After the Annapolis Tea Party, Carroll was chosen, alongside Benjamin Franklin, fellow Manorlander Samuel Chase, and John Carroll, his cousin, Georgetown University founder, and both the first Catholic bishop and archbishop in the United States. Charles Carroll embarked on an unsuccessful mission to Quebec try and win support from French Canadians for the American war effort. And he was elected as one of the delegates representing Maryland in the Second Continental Congress. He arrived too late to debate the Declaration of Independence, but he was able to sign it, becoming the only Catholic to do so. The story goes that Carroll got up when it was his turn to sign the legendary document, signed it Charles Carroll, and sat back down. Partly out of fear, and partly out of anti-Catholic sentiment, one or more of the other men in the room began heckling Carroll, noting he had nothing to lose if the British were to win the war, because there were a ton of other Charles Carrolls in the colonies, and they would never be 100% sure who, who it was that signed the, the document. Carroll then... I don't like how he did that. <laughs> Take two. Partly out of fear and partly out of anti-Catholic sentiment, one or more of the other men in the room began heckling Carroll, noting that he had nothing to lose if the British were to win the war, because there were a ton of other Charles Carrolls in the colonies, and there's no way they'd find the right guy. Carroll then stood back up, walked back to John Hancock's desk, and added, of Carrollton. Talk about a mic drop moment, though. It probably didn't really happen. Carroll went by Charles Carroll of Carrollton for a while, and seeing as his father, Charles Carroll of Annapolis, was still alive at the time, and his son went by Charles Carroll of Homewood, it was likely just a name trick he'd utilized for a while ahead of time. Probably the richest man in the American colonies, Carroll had a lot to lose if he was caught, but Carroll was dedicated to the cause. He donated substantial sums of his own personal wealth to the war effort and helped oversee the army, serving on the Congress's Board of War. In 1778, he returned to Maryland to help set up the new state government. He was one of the lone voices to defend loyalists against a popular bill that sought to confiscate all their property, but the bill passed anyway. In 1780, he was re-elected to the Continental Congress, but declined, opting instead to seek election to the Maryland State Senate, a seat he won easily. He's best known in the State Senate for introducing a bill to formally dissolve slavery a bill that did not pass due to Maryland's reliance on the practice. When the new American government was formed, Carroll was elected one of the first two U.S. senators from Maryland. However, in 1792, a Maryland state law was passed that banned anyone from serving in both the U.S. Senate and the Maryland State Senate. Preferring his job in Maryland, Carroll resigned... Frick, sorry, take two. Preferring his job in Maryland, Carroll resigned from the U.S. Senate not long after the measure was passed. He remained in the Maryland State Senate until 1800 and retired from public life in 1801. Politically a Federalist, he was uneasy about the presidency of Thomas Jefferson and stayed silent on the War of 1812 waged by his politically similar successor, James Madison. In the 1820s, renowned as an elder statesman now entering his 90s, Carroll was consulted on a variety of projects to which he happily donated money. This included infrastructure projects like the Phoenix Shot Tower, at one point the tallest building in the country, and the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, the oldest railroad in the country, of which he laid the first cornerstone. If you've ever seen B&O Railroad on a Monopoly board, well, now you know where that comes from. In addition, Carroll financed and publicly supported the American Colonization Society, an early answer to the question of slavery, which proposed freeing African slaves and sending them back to Africa to live lives free of prejudice. It was a controversial group, to say the least, even in its time, distrusted and disliked by both defenders of slavery and abolitionists. But it's actually where the modern-day country of Liberia comes from. Liberia, meaning 
liberty, literally freedom. By the start of the 1830s, Carroll was the last signer of the Declaration of Independence still standing, and one of the very last surviving founding fathers. He even outlived the birth and death of the first party system. Nobody went by Federalist or Democratic Republican anymore, since the Federalists faded into obscurity, and the Democratic Republicans split into a few major parties, the largest of which would be the Democratic Party, led by Andrew Jackson, and still with us today as the oldest political party still in operation. Carroll was invited to speak at the first Democratic Party convention in 1832, during which President Andrew Jackson would be formally re-nominated for re-election, but Carroll declined due to poor health. This poor health would seize him only a few months later, and at the ripe old age of 95, Charles Carroll of Carrollton died of a heart attack. And with Carroll's death ends our historical romp. Through the intertwining and uniquely interesting lives of so many founding fathers that you just don't learn about in school. Sure, part of that is because the legacies of such men as George Washington, John Adams, and Thomas Jefferson are arguably more far-reaching than the more regional and niche lives of Joseph Hughes, Richard Henry Lee, or Edward Rutledge, but I think it stands to reason that all were impactful and important in key ways. I describe the lives of 16 men, so many more if you count the various little names and bios I peppered in for context. But why? Why do all this? Why not just do a Renaissance Matt biography of George Washington and call it a 4th of July? There's just something about my historically geared brain that loves how all these different men from different walks of life, from millionaire planters to shoemakers, Protestants, Quakers, Deists, and Catholics, from Connecticut to South Carolina, all bonded together over the idea of a free, independent United States. That's what we celebrate today, ladies and gentlemen. The idea that 56 people found important enough to die for by signing a Declaration of Independence from the biggest military power in the world. The idea that delegates from across the country met and debated when passionately discussing the best possible kind of government for this new country. And the idea that the United States could truly be a more perfect union than any that had come before. You've just listened to an episode of Geeks Crossing. For our foreign viewers, I'm sure you learned a lot from my info vomit. And for my fellow Americans, I'm sure you had no idea what I was talking about for most of this either. And that's okay, because before I did my research, I'd obviously never heard of any of these people either. Did any of you pick a favorite of my obscure founding fathers? Someone whose story and misadventures captivated you the most? And did I leave out any other obscure founding fathers? Maybe someone your town is named after, somebody you did a project on for school, who you think could have also merited a shout-out on this list. Let me know in our Discord server. Link is in the description of this episode, as always. Follow us on Instagram, at Deeks Crossing, and continue to support us wherever you're listening to us right now, whether it be through Anchor, Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts, or iHeartRadio. Tell your friends and family about us. Hey, tell your social studies teacher or history professor about us. I bet they get a kick out of this geeky episode and get a kick out of correcting any minor mistakes I may have made throughout. <laughs> I'm Matt. God bless America. Happy 4th of July, everybody. Mm-hmm.